Hello, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 14 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas for how to raise more money, really enjoy their job and make a bigger difference. If you're a fundraiser or the chief executive of a charity and you already work with a board of volunteer fundraisers, or you've heard about this tactic and would like to make it work for your organisation, but you have some reservations about the practicalities and the risks that it brings, then today's episode should serve to demystify and hopefully inspire you. Because today I'm sharing advice from one of the world's experts on how to work with volunteer boards to boost major donor, trust and corporate income by working with a board of senior volunteers. I'm particularly excited to bring you this content from inside the resource library in our Brightspot Members Club, and which our members have told me they found really helpful over the years. It's part of an interview I did with a smart, experienced, high-value fundraiser called Jennifer Coleman piers If you don't know Jennifer, here's a brief snapshot. She's worked for charities for more than 16 years, and for nine of those, she worked for the NSPCC, a large children's charity in the UK. She did a variety of roles there. In fact, she joined as a graduate trainee, and for four years, she was the head of volunteer board fundraising, responsible for a team of fundraisers raising two to three million pounds per year. She was also, for several years, the chair of the Institute of Fundraising's Volunteer Board Fundraising Special Interest Group. This session with Jennifer includes some research into why working with a volunteer board helps you raise more money than if you tried to do high-value fundraising without one. The four things you need in place as a charity if you are to go ahead with this approach and practical advice about how to find and work with an effective chair and board members. I made this interview with Jennifer several years ago and since then she's come back into the club to answer members' questions. And each time we've worked with Jennifer, her calm, clear thinking, evidence-based approach has proved hugely helpful to myself and the members of the Brightspot Club. This episode of the Fundraising Brightspots podcast is brought to you by the Brightspot Members Club. As a practical alternative to one-off conferences and courses whose impact can fade all too quickly, the Members Club is an online resource that gives you ongoing access to a whole library of video training courses, monthly coaching webinars and live training events. It's all designed to help you learn, enjoy your job and raise more money. To join the 300 fundraisers already in the club, or just to find out more, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. On the day of the interview, I went to meet Jennifer in the offices of the Institute of Imagination, a new museum for which Jennifer was the head of philanthropy, a role which included managing a board of volunteer fundraisers. At the time of publishing this episode, Jennifer splits her week between the museum and her independent work as a social impact consultant. The first question I asked Jennifer was about how she weighs up the pros and cons of working with senior volunteers in high-value fundraising. Uh, there are certainly days of working with volunteer boards where you think, why is this worth it, um, when you're having a particularly frustrating uh, situation. Um, but absolutely, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for working with volunteers. Um, I think actually in any capacity, I mean, we're talking about fundraising today, but I think whatever you're trying to achieve can only be enhanced by having a, a broader group of people pushing in the same direction. Um, from a fundraising perspective, I think you can um, access more networks, um, you can deliver more fundraising and ultimately raise more money for your charity working with volunteers than you could possibly do on your own. Um, volunteer boards that we're talking about are, are senior volunteers, so those people who have incredible influence. Um, they're captains of industry, they're entrepreneurs, 
Um, they're running big trusts and foundations. Um, you know, these are the people that hold the keys to all sorts of different fundraising opportunities. And if you can inspire them and engage them and get them working in the right way for your organisation, and that's obviously the challenge, um, then I think they can they can achieve incredible things. Uh, so just to give a, yeah, a couple of examples. Um, one uh, is the um, art auction, um, which is an event that we held for the NSPCC. Um, and it was actually the start of a whole range of art-based fundraising um, that, that led to further fundraising events later on. But um, it was driven by an artist. So uh, Keith Tyson, who, um, uh, you know, very well-known contemporary artist, um, was really inspired by our work and, and joined our campaign board. And uh, because of his connections, because of his um, reputation, he was able to engage other artists um, and importantly, other buyers um, of art, collectors of art, um, to put together this incredible collection of um, contemporary pieces from people like Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin, um, which were auctioned at Sotheby's. Um, and again, using his connections, he got them to waive their buyer's fee, um, waive their commission. So all the profits came to the NSPCC. And that event raised £1.5 million. Wow. Um, and that's something that we, we wouldn't have even dreamed possible if we were trying to do that as staff members. I, I couldn't possibly have just called Damien Hurst up and said, would you give me a piece that will sell for over a million pounds? Yeah. And the key thing is uh, the listener may be thinking, well, I, I just in my organisation, I wouldn't have access to some of those connections. That may be true, but the principle remains the Absolutely. same, does it not? Yes. The principle is that what, however large or small or well-connected your organisation is or isn't, this, the principle remains the same, that if, if you go to people in your community who are relatively well-connected, they will be able to deliver value and contacts for you that you, the you the staff member, can't. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, thinking about it on the simplest level, Peer-to-peer fundraising will always be more successful than staff-to-donor fundraising. And if you think about that in your own situation, if your friend were to send you an email asking for sponsorship for a marathon they were running um, for X charity, how much more likely are you to sponsor your friend than if you got an email out of the blue from the charity itself asking you for a donation? Um, of course, you're going to, you know, you're much more likely to sponsor your friend than you are to, to just respond to a cold mail. And that's exactly the same. The same principle applies. Um, you know, a, a friend asking a friend at whatever level in whatever network yeah. um, or, or a business contact um, is always going to be more successful than a cold approach from somebody. And particularly, I think, um, when you're dealing with more senior people, there's always the sort of um, hierarchy, the perception of somebody, you know, a fundraiser from a charity is not going to be perceived at the same level as a CEO of a company um, or, you know, or a famous artist or whatever it might be. So I think right from you know kind of you know uh you know teenagers fundraising from each other or you know running fundraising events through to you know the most senior people in society the same principle applies and uh, i believe that there was one thumbnail bit of research you, you conducted uh, about major gift asks at the nspcc yeah so we were um trying to sort of answer that question of what what added value is there from volunteers um because you know, because they're not always easy. So making sure that we were absolutely um, able to justify, and we looked at a pool of major gifts. Um, so uh, there, at the NSPCC, there was a, a team of people, still a team of people working um, to secure major gifts directly as staff, um, and then we were fundraising through volunteers to secure major gifts. Um, and uh, the uh, from the sample that we took, um, we were four times more likely to secure a major gift where it was asked for by a peer than it when it was asked for by a staff member. Um, so not only do you get the, the huge kind of uh, increase in prospects and your prospect pool, so just from having a connection, they bring new names, but at the point of asking if a, if a peer member is involved in that ask, they were four times more likely to be successful. So almost, in a sense, almost always when the staff, when, when the volunteer was involved, the ask resulted in a yeah. yes. And these were, if my memory serves me correctly, £100,000 gifts or something like that? Uh, yeah, so anything from 10000 up. 10000 um, to 100000 yeah. in, in that full sample. 
just the staff member making the ask, uh, the chances were not necessarily in your favour. Mm-hmm. Involve the senior person who knew that 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 donor. Almost always, it ended in a yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. So um, uh, our appetite is whetted that mm-hmm. absolutely, if we're a fundraiser who wants to make maximum value for our organisation, we really need to consider this one. Um, but the, it's not all plain sailing, and probably you've learned the hard way, as have I, that there's some things you need to, to get right. If I'm in an organisation and I'm thinking maybe this volunteer board strategy would really lift, especially our philanthropic income, what are some things that I should consider before I rush into this as a, and actually going to set up a board? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are four things that you really should think about um, and make sure that you have in place. Because if you set up a board without these, I think you're making, you know, you've got an uphill struggle. It's, it's always going to be difficult. Um, but I think if you have these four things in place, then you'll be much more likely to be success, successful. Um, the first is, can you clearly articulate the mission and purpose of your organisation? What is it you're trying to achieve as a charity? Do you have a solid case for support? Um, is that compelling? Um, have you tested that with major donors? Have you tested that with volunteers? Um, you know, it, and that obviously applies to any kind of fundraising, but it's, it's surprising the number of organisations that, that don't have that clear articulation. Um, so I think that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, can you then apply that to what you're specifically asking your volunteers to achieve? So if you're, um, you know, in SPCC, the, the mission is to end cruelty to children. There's a clearly articulated case of support for the organisation. But that's a very broad mission. What, what is it that the volunteers are trying to achieve? Um, so... Um, for example, one of the boards that um, I was responsible for at the NSPCC was raising money for therapeutic services. So they had a very clear mission that you know, they understood the context within which they were working, that it was overall they were helping to end cruelty. But their specific responsibility, the thing that they could really make a difference on, was therapeutic services, making sure that they were provided to the thousands of children that needed them each year. Um, and we were able to tie specific financial targets to that. And they could see of the money they were raising, what that was contributing to that specific goal. So the first to kind of go together. Can you articulate the the mission and vision of the organisation? And can you then make that tangible and real for the volunteers? Can they make a difference to that? Um, I think the second two are more cultural. So do you have senior buy-in to working with with the volunteer board? So um, the people that you're trying to engage are the most senior people um, their chief executives have said the you know, captains of industry um, and uh, you obviously as a fundraiser need to have your fantastic influencing skills you need to build rapport and engagement with these people um, but you won't be able to avoid them wanting to speak to your chief exec to the person who's running your services to the, the, the people making decisions in your organization um, and time and time again I've, I've, I've spoken to fundraisers who have had an idea for, for setting up a board um, their chief exec and fundraising director have said Oh yeah, sounds like a great idea. You go off and, and do that. That just won't work. You can't you can't have the fundraiser just merrily working with the volunteer boards at the side. They won't they won't they won't have that. Um, they will expect to speak to people at their level, um, whether that's the chief exec or the finance director. Um, so you really need to make sure that that senior team have understood that that has a time requirement. They they will be expected to come to events. They'll be expected to come to key meetings. Um, and that is essentially the, the kind of price that they will have to pay in order to get the returns from, from the board. Um, they will also have to face questions and uh, challenges. So, again, these people will have opinions. You know, if you've sold them well on the mission and you've given them a clear remit in terms of fundraising, um, they're going to have a they're going to have a say about that. So do they think, you know, they're running you're running your services efficiently? Do they have an opinion about a better supplier they think you should use? 
you know, they're going to have they're going to have suggestions. And your senior team need to be willing to handle those questions, handle those objections um, sensitively um, and not shut them down and not shut them out, um, because that will be a huge block to you. They just you, you no matter how much um, relationship building wizardry you use, you won't be able to, to keep on going if, if that's the case. Yeah. So it's uh, let's be clear. We're, we're not saying that the charity is necessarily going to have to take all this advice and go go away and change its strategy. Um, but we are, and, and most of the time, probably let's let's hope it was using the most sensible supplier and so on. But you are saying they might might need to be prepared for the fact that these questions will come, and above all, that they need to be able to handle handle them in a sensitive way and a diplomatic way that takes on board the good intent of the of the um, of the volunteer, but but you know doesn't put their nose out of joint for for expressing an opinion. Absolutely. So um, it, it, again, they're going to have to deploy their relationship building skills and 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 the time that goes into doing that. Um, and then the the fourth thing, which again sort of uh, kind of comes from that, really, is then the buy in and support of your fundraising colleagues. Uh, so obviously, it depends on the structure that you have in your fundraising team. Um, but uh, you know, the likelihood is that there will be colleagues um, within uh, you know your fundraising team who are responsible for other areas. So you might have a corporate fundraising colleague or um, a community fundraising colleague. Um, and if you are using your volunteer board to its fullest extent, um, they will be making a difference to all areas of your fundraising. So they might have. Um, a connection to a company they want you to engage you're going to be able to need to work with your corporate colleague um, to uh, develop that relationship to, to work um, to get the most out of your volunteer um, so again it's no good if your fundraising colleagues are saying oh yes that's great you do your board but I don't want to engage with them they are also going to have to give up time um, and again um, you know, uh, use their relationship building skills to, to manage questions or suggestions that come from the volunteers uh, so again you need that buy in and, and if it kind of again the culture kind of flows from the top so if you need your senior team to buy in and they, they need to model that to their um, you know the teams below them so that the, your fundraising colleagues will also support you um, in, in delivering from your board yeah so if right now the listener is thinking well I've got so some of these four in place but I have some concerns about some of them there it's not the end of the world it's just they might need to do some some really serious um effort to of influencing internally either to improve the case for sport or to really uh, do whatever they can to help the senior team or the or their colleagues under, understand what will be expected but also be really clear actually we really can't go ahead unless the whole organization wants to do this and a kind of a level of assertiveness and clarity in making that position is, is really essential isn't it absolutely um it, it, i say they can add enormous value they can make a huge difference but if you're not you know if you're not set up then you will spend hours of your time hours of your colleagues time managing the the the, the endless questions and the mess and the frustration that will come from it so um it's absolutely worth investing in that early stage to make sure that you have the right foundation in place yeah and i guess some of some of the uh, the stick carrot and stick the stick part of this is if if you sense that your senior team really aren't aren't getting this um, the bottom line is, unless we get these four, you might have all of the hassle, but not get those rich returns. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and, and I've seen examples of that where um, you know boards haven't been managed in the right way. They they can they are huge um, time suckers, you know, because again these people are demanding. Um, uh, you can spend enormous amounts of time trying to you know to kind of build bridges to kind of make up for lost ground. Um, but if you don't have those things in place, then it, you're always onto a loser. Um, yeah. and, and they're very hard to shut down. You then run the, the the risk of damaging reputation because just as you can use a volunteer to positively influence a network, 
just as easy for them to negatively influence a network. So what you don't want is, is annoyed volunteers who are going off and, and bad-mouthing the organisation for not having given them the respect that they think they deserve. So this tactic has rich rewards, but really only for an, organi- an organisation and a senior team that go into it with their eyes open and are really serious about doing what, what is necessary to make it work for all parties. Absolutely, yeah. Um, thank you. And then I had a question about um, how you go about setting, assuming you can, can, you've decided it is right for us, how do you, uh, A, find the the, people, the board members, uh, and, and B, the chair, or in which order do you do it? Um, help me out with that one. Uh, so I think um, once you've uh, decided you're going ahead, you've got your, you know, you're kind of clear that you've got a good foundation in place. Um, you then need to um, be clear about what it is you're expecting the board to deliver. So, um, you know, you hopefully you've got a clear sense of the remit from uh, in terms of the mission that they're delivering. What financial target are you setting? And obviously, as you referenced earlier, some charities that might be millions, for some it might just be, you know, tens of thousands. Um, so depending on what scale you're talking about. Um, and what areas are you hoping to, to access? So are you able to deal with a major giving program if your volunteer starts, you know, securing major gifts? Um, have you got a corporate team or a, a ability to develop corporate? So think about the kinds of people that you want to engage and also the kinds of people that you already have contact with so um obviously as as with all um you know fundraising you, you look at your kind of nearest and dearest first so if you already have some major donors are there any of those that have shown potential or interest in um getting more involved with the organization are there a couple of trustees maybe who've shown a particular interest in fundraising and, and have introduced contacts before um so in most cases there will be somebody at least one person within your network of supporters who has the potential to um to kind of help you get this this board um, going and growing and that person may or may not have- be your vision for who would be the, the good chair in the end of it. Yeah. You're saying find someone who could help you kind of get it going and Absolutely. start getting people in a room. Yeah. Um, so, for example, here at the Children's Museum, we are in the process of setting up a campaign board and identified a couple of people who had already supported and had been involved. Um, neither of whom were chair potentials, um, but were both passionate about helping us um, uh, deliver the income we need for the campaign. Um, and we uh, kind of proposed to them a set of um, kind of job descriptions, essentially. So what we were looking for in terms of a chair and what we were looking for in terms of board members. Um, and um, given the scale of the campaign, we're obviously looking for somebody who is um, kind of has a good profile and is very senior um, and can access gifts at million pound plus level. So we're, we're quite um, we've got quite specific requirements, I guess, in terms of what we're looking for. Um, and as you know, kind of passionate, as committed as the couple of volunteers are, neither of them quite fit that description in terms of profile and, and um, level bridge networks um, so uh, we shared that description with them they they could kind of clearly see for themselves that they didn't fit that description either so i know sometimes people worry that that's a problem that so people did, did will that help you in that communication with them that you'd already written down on a piece of paper yeah the, the right chair to achieve what we need to achieve for the children's museum will have these there are these three or four things that are musts on our list yeah you could show them that and then it wasn't personal. Absolutely. They could opt out. Exactly. So they could, they, they, they essentially self-selected. They kind of, you know, um, uh, said, said to me rather than me having to say to them, I don't, you know, I don't think I can fit the bill, but I want to help you find them. Yeah. Um, so we've worked with those, um, so two people to start with, um, have then grown that 
to um, six people now. Um, again, none of whom are, the, are, are going to be the chair, but they're all working with us to to secure that chair. Um, and uh, so, you know, for, for us, it came from the, those couple of people. I think if you're really stuck, if you if you can't think of even one person um, within your network or you're really struggling to get them engaged, um, then you can also go down the recruitment route. Um, so uh, I know a number of charities who've successfully worked with headhunters to identify someone um, external to their networks, but who's looking for a charity role. Uh, so again, if you've got a really clear description of what it is that you're looking for, essentially a jo- job description, um, the person's specification, um, there are people out there who will, um, you know, sometimes pro bono, sometimes through a fee, will help you identify that person. So, um, you know, think about the sorts of um, uh, professionals who are looking for a portfolio career, um, who are maybe taking a number of non-exec positions. Quite often, they will now say, "I would also like a charity role to be part of my portfolio." Um, so, th- there is always that route. So, even if you're sitting there thinking, "I just can't think of anyone," we're, we're starting from a position of a blank sheet of paper. Um, then, don't rule this method out because you could still look for somebody new from outside the organisation. Yeah, and it's especially tantalising to me that you know potentially that head headhunter might do that as a as a pro bono. Yeah thing there, there must be recruiters and headhunters out there and most people i know know, know some people in recruitment <laughs> yeah <laughs> one could start by calling the first four people that would be recruiters <laughs> who've been sending you emails absolutely absolutely um so that's a really uh, good tactic that ne- that need not cost you if you really don't already have a network yeah absolutely um i think you've alluded to them but and they might shift a little bit depending on the organization and the campaign but if you were to go for a default two or three qualities that are likely to be found in um, a successful chair of a volunteer board, what might those two or three be on the top of your list? So I think the first one has to be that they are influential in their network. So, um, again, the scale and scope of that network will vary depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, but they need to be someone who is, is perceived by their peers as being someone that, of influence, um, someone who they would take a phone call from, that they would um, be willing to come to an event for. Um, so the, the person who is leading your, your, your board has to be that, the, the most influential person has to be able to pull those strings. Um, so that will kind of automatically weed out some people who, who might be able to be a board member. So, um, they might still have all the other qualities um, but if they don't have that key thing of being the most influential the kind of person who can sit you know head of the table um, then that would rule them out um, if they have that they also need to be willing to use that network so there are um, some people in some industries who might be very well connected but where um, they are not you know they're not the client they have client relationships so just because somebody has a great because, black book because for instance they're a supplier yes they've got an amazing little black book yeah but uh, they'd be in a conflict of interest to be going out and telling people what to yeah. do or making too many asks. Yeah. If it, it just would be bad for their business. Exactly. So they have to be. They have to have the networks, but they also have to be willing to leverage those networks for you. Right. Um, and and, and you know, there might be some people who it, it wouldn't even be a conflict of interest, but they just don't. From a character perspective, they don't feel comfortable with it, and you, there's nothing you can do to kind of unlock that yeah. unease and that they have. And, and, and the reality is, some people are, are comfortable and some are not. You've got to be. Get, get clear about that from the start yes. rather than ruin it later because we, because we didn't quite bring it up. Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, so what else? Uh, so um, they also need to be willing to give. Uh, so again, if you're looking at this person as the lead of your campaign, um, they're the person that's leading the charge, they need to also do that with the support that they bring. So if they are tasking their board and then um, the board are going out to their networks asking for gifts in whatever format that might take, if they haven't been willing to make that investment themselves, 
that whole chain kind of collapses. Um, and there are a whole range of ways they can do that. It might be a gift through their company. It might be a gift through a trust. It could be gifts over time. Um, it doesn't. Although ideally you want that to be the lead gift, so you'd like them to, to, to give the biggest gift of the board. It doesn't have to be the case if maybe you know, there are other things that they're bringing. But I do think the principle of giving personally is incredibly important. Again, must they have actually signed the cheque or the company started to do the... The, the the giving before you appoint them as chair, or are you a bit more relaxed? About I think yeah, a bit more. I think, we might never get going at all. Yes, exactly. I think um, they have to sign up to the principle of it. Yeah. Um, so and again, you, and you believe that they're yes, up. absolutely. So again, I'm um, thinking about the, the campaign board that I'm starting here. Um, so we're starting from that you know from that position of um, starting position. We were very clear from the beginning that each of the, you know, that one of the requirements, not just for the chair, but for, for all of the members was to give. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been working with them to set up, uh, you know, various things in terms of the, our approach and our um, prospect list. Um, and it, it's only now, maybe six months after we had kind of set that requirement, that I'm now having conversations with each of them about, OK, so you know that that's, that's one of the deal. Um, it, have you thought about it? What level are you thinking? How can we now make that gift a reality? Um, so... Uh, and there's, you know, every, everyone that I've spoken to is kind of going, oh, yes, I know that's something I need to do. Let, you know, I've been thinking about it. Let's have a further conversation. So I think as long as you're very clear from the beginning um, and everyone knows the deal, that conversation is then quite easy. So as long as they've signed up to the terms of reference, that, you know, it should then follow. Yeah. Um, are we there? That's, that's your two, two or three. Anything else? Um, I mean, I think... Really to be careful of, uh, to look out for. So I think they need to be um, passionate advocates for your cause. So, um, you know, there are, there are lots of people who would be, you know, great volunteers who've got the networks, who are willing to support, um, but they have to be able to influence their networks. Um, and if they're not bought into what your organisation is doing, if they're cynical or critical, or maybe they don't necessarily agree with your approach, again, you're always going to come up against that because they'll, yeah. yes, in theory, they'll ask their friends, but actually, no, they won't because they're not happy yet. Right? Yeah. But you're not saying they need at the time you approach them, they, they need to have been a lifelong fan. No, no. I mean, they might be. Yeah. All <laughs> no, yeah. But they might have these other qualities and and be willing to explore and, and, and become really interested and passionate about this particular thing. But yeah. really, it's the other way around. You're saying is if you sense they're not, if you sense some, some, some problem or conflict between... Um, them and their willingness to, to get behind you, that, then that should be a warning to you. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, it sounds obvious in a way when we say it like this, but we could be seduced exactly. by the other things, couldn't we? Absolutely. Um, and again, you're, you know, you'd just be setting yourself up for trouble if you don't address it. Um, so as you said before, there are lots of other things that you can layer onto it. And depending on your charity, um, you know, you might want to, to build extra things into your terms of reference around, you know, number of meetings they come to per year and, um, you know, how they might address their, their prospecting or whatever. But those those are the things that I think are essential. So the, the ability to, to lead, the ability to leverage networks and um, the willingness to give and the passion for your organisation. And then similar to that, but not quite the same, is... In terms of what you say to to the new board members from the start, again, some I know things have gone wrong in, sometimes with this strategy where organisations weren't clear enough. Do you go so far as to say that there should be a a, a contract people even, even sign when they become a, a board member, or is it? And there's a spectrum here of just how formal do you make it? But yeah. how have you tended to make it work in terms of showing? showing board members clearly what this is and what it is not about? The minimum I would always do is is have a written terms of reference. Um, and it might just be a couple of pages? 
uh, one page. It shouldn't be more than a page. Yeah. Um, and um, on that, you should have what you expect the board member to do. Um, so, you know, the things that we've just talked about or whatever else you want to include. But it should also have what they can expect from you as an organisation. So who is their main point of contact? What kind of support can they expect to give? So that it's a kind of mutual, it's a mutual arrangement. It's not just we as an organisation are demanding of you. It's also this is what you can expect. Um, and so at the minimum, I would have that as a as a as a printed you know, document that they have that they keep that is um, you know is, is referred to. Um, I think in an ideal world, you, if your chair is really kind of bought in and is is um, happy to do that, um, then to actually get people to sign up to that physically, I think is a great thing. Um, again, one of the chairs that I worked with at the NSPCC was really keen on that. Um, he took over chairing a board um, that had previously been operating and had had terms of reference, but um, in a slightly looser, you know, had, had them kind of written down, but not signed up to. And he used the opportunity of, of starting as a chair to say, right, you know, going to clear the decks, make sure everything's clear. This is an opportunity to refresh. And he wrote to every board member and said, you know, your support that you've given to date has been fantastic. Just to remind you, these are the things that you have to agree to as a board member. He actually um, included in his letter the reference to the fact that it was a real privilege to sit on the board. Um, so he was a, he was really kind of um, a, a real advocate for, you know, if you to, 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 have, to be able to go out to your networks and your friends and say, I am a member of a board for the NSPCC. That's a big deal. People put that in their CVs. You see, you know, I often see, um, you know, on people's professional profiles, the boards that they belong to for an organisation. Um, so he was very clear about saying, you know, this is a privilege for you. There is an expectation of what you will deliver. Yes. I really hope that you can continue to deliver that. If so, please sign this and send it back to me. Right. If not, there are very, you know, there, there are lots of other ways that you can support the organisation. And I think that's something to really be mindful of is that you should never feel that you're stuck. It's never an either or. It's not either they're a board member or they're not a supporter. There are a whole other, you know, a whole other range of ways that they can get involved. Yeah, that's ever so important, isn't it? Because this way of working, this way of supporting a charity is not for everybody. It doesn't make no bad person. It's just for whatever reason to, to do with their whether they like meetings, whether they like following things up, whether they've got time or money, they may or may not be right for supporting your cause in this way. Yeah. Moving away from this either or can really free you up and hopefully help you have a robust discussion. Uh, and that could be good for both parties if currently you've got a board member or even a chair for, and it's not working. Absolutely. And I think the, the other thing is to remember that that might change over time. So you might recruit the best board member in the world and they might do fantastic things for you for two years and be brilliant, but then they might change their job or they might have a family or they might move and suddenly they're not able to fulfil the requirements that they did before. And actually that's fine. That's okay. It's okay for them to step down. It's okay for them to continue supporting in a different way. And I think if you if you have that clear terms of reference that you can refer them back to and, and, and say, I know how committed you are to the charity, but you're not you're not able to fulfil these requirements. And as you, you know, as you said, Rob, that's fine. That's OK. Yeah. Here are some other things you might want to think of. Because actually, I think, again, I, I've worked with so many volunteers where they are really committed. They really, really want to make a difference to your charity. But for whatever reason, they're unable to. And they feel guilty. That makes and, them feel yeah. bad as well as causing you exactly. stress about the symptoms of yeah. And, and you know, giving and supporting should be a joyful experience. We talk about the joy of giving. But actually, if they're sitting there thinking, oh, I really want to help, but I feel like I'm letting them down. I haven't been able to go to the last two meetings. I'm, you know, I'm letting the beneficiaries down. That's not a good feeling. And, then, and, then, and in the long run, that's going to damage their relationship. So much better to be transparent and open, address the issue sooner rather than later. Um, and if it's, you know, if it's the case that they want to take a sabbatical, great. If it's a case of moving them to a different role, absolutely fine. I think this is one of the key learnings uh, I found in this way of working and from what you, the advice you're giving us today is um, if the listener already has a, has a board and there's some, some things about it aren't working or some, the, the chair or, or some of the members is not working, 
key thing you're saying is don't just suffer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's bad for both parties. Get proactive. Work out a strategy, either you on your own or you with your manager or even your your, your chief exec or someone, yeah. and go and have this uh, sensible chat uh, where where you en- end up with win-win for both parties, even if that means you, you might lose a board member. Mm-hmm better to lose them and get a decent board. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the really important thing to remember is that, that in all likelihood, this person is incredibly committed to your charity. They're passionate about what you're trying to achieve. <clears throat> they, you know, they didn't volunteer, you know, to, to, to just be annoying and to cause problems. They, they, they want to make a difference. Um, so as a fundraiser, you might, you're on the receiving end potentially of some challenging issues, challenging behaviour. If you think about it from, from their perspective, actually, they want to make a difference to your charity. How can you help them to do that? Yeah. If you if you always kind of come back to thinking about it from that point of view, yeah. that might kind of unlock the issue, and you might realise actually it is because they're too busy, or it is because they've got a conflict, or they've got commitments elsewhere. How can you make that easier yeah. for them? So I hope you found this excerpt from my interview with Jennifer helpful. For a short summary of the key ideas, do check out the episode notes on the blog and podcast section of our Bright Spot Fundraising website. As you may know. I tried to keep these podcast episodes under half an hour, but if you're a member of the Bright Spot Members Club, you'll be able to access the full interview in the club online. This includes Jennifer's tactics to help boards increase income by embracing the notion of major donor fundraising, rather than defaulting to the glitzy gala dinners that they're often drawn to, but which you may be aware are very time intensive and tend to have a much lower return on investment compared to major donor fundraising. And if you're not yet a member of the Bright Spot Members Club, it's well worth checking out as there are lots of resources in the club to help your fundraising, including a great session we recorded from when members wanted to get advice from Jennifer on a range of topics, including some of the ideas we talked about in today's interview. So if you're curious about how the club gives ongoing support and inspiration as an alternative to one-off conference days, you can find out more by checking out the website brightspotmembersclub/join. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. Over the last two decades, whenever I've interviewed super successful fundraisers like Jennifer, I've noticed that one thing they all have in common is a willingness to keep learning throughout their career. But I also know this isn't always easy, so thank you for being one of the ones who do. So until the next time, best of luck with your fundraising.